From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. The Jesuits back at St. Louis University used to joke that if you're a couple in need of marriage prep, if you're a criminal or a prostitute, you go to Father Dismas or to Father Ed. Otherwise, you can go to any priest. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the show Dawn Eden Goldstein. She's the author of Sunday Will Never Be the Same and, under the pen name Dawn Eden, The Thrill of the Chaste, My Peace I Give You, Healing Sexual Wounds with the Help of the Saints, and Remembering God's Mercy. Dr. Goldstein began her working life as a rock and roll historian and went on to editorial positions at the New York Post and the Daily News. In 2016, she became the first woman to earn a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of St. Mary of the Lake. Afterwards, she taught at universities and seminaries in the United States, England, and India, and she is currently working on her licentiate in canon law from the Catholic University of America. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Father Ed, the story of Bill W.'s spiritual sponsor. And as the title suggests, listeners, we will be talking frankly about addiction and recovery during this conversation. If you or someone you love is in the process of dealing with addiction, we will have resources available on the episode page on our website for this episode at thingsnotseenradio.com. Dawn Eden Goldstein, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, David. So I want to begin our conversation by doing what I call setting the table. I want to get some pieces in place so even listeners that have never heard about these figures or these organizations before, they have some sense of what we're talking about. So I'm going to start with a kind of a broad question. I'm going to ask you, for someone that is unfamiliar with Alcoholics Anonymous, if you could give me four or five sentences to orient them to what this organization is and what it tries to do, I think that would help us to begin the conversation. Sure thing. Alcoholics Anonymous, which I'm not a member of, but which I greatly admire, is a fellowship of men and women who have a shared desire to stop drinking. And those members who have stopped drinking in the fellowship as they want to or are able to maintain their sobriety and to help others to stop drinking and maintain their sobriety. That That's wonderful. And so when we talk about Alcoholics Anonymous, another kind of name for that is a 12-step program. And I wonder, again, listeners may have heard this phrase but never quite figured out what it relates to. So when we're talking about the 12 steps or a 12-step program, can you give us a few sentences just to orient the listener to what we're talking about there? Sure. I should preface this by saying that Alcoholics Anonymous, for many reasons that we can go into later, has a rule of anonymity so that normally people who are their members don't publicly identify themselves according to their last name. So it'll be like Joe C or and so on. But the co-founders, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith, agreed to have their full identity known. So Bill Wilson, who is also known as Bill W., in the late 1930s, when he was writing what AA members call the big book, the book that tells how Alcoholics Anonymous, how the program works, he composed 12 points, which are known as the 12 steps, 
which are the means by which it is recommended that members attain and maintain sobriety. And let me just say for listeners, 12-step programs are not limited simply to Alcoholics Anonymous. There is That's correct. There's Al-Anon, which is for supporting the family members of those who are addicted to alcohol, Narcotics Anonymous, various other types of relief organizations, but all of them cluster, if I'm correct, around some kind of version of these 12 steps. Now, that's my phrasing, not yours. Am I correct about that, or is there some other way that to say that? That is correct. So the text of the 12 steps is copyrighted, but the General Service Office, which is the headquarters of Alcoholics Anonymous, will permit other recovery organizations to use the 12 steps if they request. And sometimes other organizations, often they will adapt them in some ways so that instead of recovery from alcoholism, it's recovery from gambling or narcotics or other things. And one other distinction that I think will be helpful to listeners, both Alcoholics Anonymous and these other 12-step organizations, and they don't really identify themselves publicly, but when they are talked about in a public way, they will often refer to themselves specifically, they'll make a distinction. We're not a religious organization. We are a spiritual organization. And I wonder if you could help my listeners understand what's the difference when we're saying it's not a religious organization, it's a spiritual organization. Some listeners are going to say, that sounds like the same thing. Well, by saying that AA is not religious, what that means is that it doesn't require adherence to any particular religion at all. So somebody could have no religion, even somebody could be an atheist and still be part of AA and benefit from it. But in order to get the best benefits from it, they need to be open to a spiritual dimension of life. So I would say to be open to help from above, but I think more strictly speaking, given that atheists can be part of it, they at least have to be open to some sort of power that's greater than themselves, even if, as is in the case of some people, they might make their higher power the group, meaning the fellowship itself. But they have to believe that they are not where the buck both starts and stops, that there has to be something beyond themselves. Let me take just a quick moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dawn Eden Goldstein, and we're talking about her recent book, Father Ed, the story of Bill W.'s spiritual sponsor about the founding and the early years of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, we're now kind of orienting the listener to what this organization is, Alcoholics Anonymous, what the 12 steps are. But now let's begin to bring some of the characters in your book, Father Ed, into the conversation. So we've already mentioned Bill W. and Dr. Bob S. And I wonder if you could tell us briefly about each of these. And I imagine some listeners might think that Alcoholics Anonymous is an organization that has existed for centuries, or maybe it's something that has always been there or just kind of arose by itself. But one of the things that's really wonderful about your book, Father Ed, is you help to walk us through that that's not the case. Instead, it was founded by some fairly desperate people in desperate circumstances, and it was founded fairly recently. So let's begin to learn about some of these folks. Tell us about Bill W. briefly. Bill Wilson was born in the late 19th century, I think in 1893. He was a stockbroker on Wall Street who was fairly successful until he began to be really overtaken by alcohol addiction to the point where uh, he and his wife, Lois, were told that given his current alcoholic situation, he most likely would have to be committed to what they called a sanitarium, which we would say is a mental institution, mental facility for life. At that time, in the early 1930s, there was no real treatment for alcoholism, none that had been shown to work on any sort of a reliable basis. 
There were some drastic interventions that some healthcare practitioners were attempting, including things like frontal lobotomy, you know, having parts of the brain removed and electroshock therapy and other things involving certain types of, of drugs or medications. But none of these things had really been shown to work, and many of them were quite invasive and harmful. And if you could, tell us a little bit about Dr. Bob Smith. What was his role in the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous? Dr. Bob Smith was a general practitioner in Akron, Ohio, who also suffered from terrible alcoholism to the point where it was affecting his livelihood, his marriage, all his personal relationships, and where it was really um, killing him. And he, too, did not have any kind of a bright future to look forward to if he continued in the direction he was going. And so these two men began to gather together with others that were suffering from alcohol abuse, alcohol addiction. How did it move from this kind of desperate place where there was very little hope and, in fact, almost butchery with regard to medical intervention to something more like what it is now, which is people meeting in a room and telling stories to each other. Well, Bill had a good friend named Ebby, who had been one of his drinking partners as well. And Ebby had gotten into some trouble with the law caused by his drinking. And when he was brought before the judge, there were a couple of men in the courtroom who, whom Ebby didn't know who were Christians and were part of a kind of a, a sect called the Oxford Group, not to be confused with the Oxford Movement, which was Catholic. The Oxford Group was a kind of a Protestant sect. It later went under the name of Moral Rearmament. But these Christian men took Bill's friend Ebby under their wing and through their influence and the influence of the group that, that they were part of, Ebby had a religious experience that enabled him for a time to stop drinking. And during this period, a fairly long period, when Ebby was sober, he went to visit Bill Wilson. And this was when at a time when Bill was hitting bottom with his within his alcoholism. And Bill asked Ebby how it was that Ebby was able now to refuse drink. And Ebby said, I've got religion. And Ebby started to explain to Bill certain steps that Ebby himself had been through in terms of Catholics might call an examination of conscience. Basically, in egg terms, it came to be known as a fearless self-inventory. And it was a certain process that the Oxford group had, which involved an admitting of faults and admitting of those one's faults to another person and to God and then asking God to remove those faults. So it involved certain things which are similar to practices and religions throughout the world and spiritualities throughout the world, involving a certain kind of self-surrender, a certain kind of acknowledgement that I can't do this on my own. I am powerless. I need help from outside myself. So when Bill heard about this, he was intrigued, but he didn't feel that he was capable of that kind of surrender. And he certainly didn't have that kind of relationship with God at that point. But then at a certain point, when he realized how bad his drinking was, he checked himself back into a facility that he had checked into before. And Ebby visited him there, talked to him more about God. And after Ebby left, Bill, while sitting wide awake on his bed in this facility, in his desperation, cried out, if there is a God, let him show himself. And Bill had a transcendent experience. Members would later somewhat mockingly or jokingly call it Bill's hot flash. But it was an experience with a flash of blue-white light where Bill felt very much that he was in the presence of God. And when this experience was over, he felt that he had been relieved of this desire to drink. And after that, he spent some time trying to bring to other alcoholics what he himself had received unsuccessfully. And it wasn't until while on a business trip, he encountered Dr. Bob that he was able to help someone else get sober. And he didn't just happen to find 
Dr. Bob. He found Dr. Bob because on his business trip to Akron, this was in late spring of 1935, Bill was experiencing disappointment in what he had intended to do on this trip. And he felt with this disappointment, the desire to drink again. And so in his desperation, he started to call up local houses of worship, trying to explain to them, I need to find an alcoholic that I can talk to so that I won't drink. Because he had found that the only way he could avoid drinking was by helping other alcoholics get sober. That's how he met Dr. Bob. And that's how once Dr. Bob became sober through Bill's help, the two of them began what would become known as Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dawn Eden Goldstein. She's the author of Sunday Will Never Be the Same. She began her working life as a rock and roll historian and went on to editorial positions at the New York Post and the Daily News. In 2016, she became the first woman to earn a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of St. Mary of the Lake. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Father Ed, the story of Bill W.'s spiritual sponsor. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dawn Eden Goldstein. She's the author of Sunday Will Never Be the Same. She began her working life as a rock and roll historian and went on to editorial positions at the New York Post and the Daily News. In 2016, she became the first woman to earn a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of St. Mary of the Lake. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Father Ed, the story of Bill W.'s spiritual sponsor, which deals with, among other things, the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, we're going to be speaking frankly about addiction and recovery in this conversation. If you or any of your loved ones are struggling with that, we're going to have some resources on the episode page on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. You can go there and find out how to get connected to some organizations that can provide some experience, strength, and hope to you and your loved ones. Dr. Goldstein, in the first part of our conversation, we were setting the table talking about the history briefly of Alcoholics Anonymous, what it means to talk about an organization being a 12-step organization, and we talked a little bit about some of the founders, Bill W., Dr. Bob S., and Ebby T. Now I want to introduce the main character in your book, Father Ed. Now, the first third of your book, at least, is spent in great detail talking about his childhood, how he came to discern that he was going to go into the priesthood, and how he came to be part of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. That's too much for us to cover here. But for the sake of giving a flavor of who Father Ed was, I'd invite you to reflect for a moment on an illustration you give right at the outset of your book, Father Ed, where you go back to an editorial that Father Ed was writing, because among other things, he was a trained journalist, where he begins to talk about the difference between an armor-piercing intellect and a dumb-dumb intellect. And I'd like if you could explain briefly the difference between those two and which one Father Ed thought he was. Yes, well, that's right. So back when Father Ed was simply Edward Dowling S.J., a Jesuit scholastic, which is to say a seminarian doing his philosophy studies at St. Louis University, he was writing an article for a philosophy journal that the Jesuits had there. He was commenting on an article that he had read in the Scientific American that compared two different types of minds. And unfortunately, this article used a munitions comparison, 
but it used them to describe the ways that different people think. One way of thinking is armor piercing, which is someone who does linear thinking from A to B to C and so on and gets right to the point. And the other type of intellect that was described in this article, which intrigued the young Edward Dowling, was a dum-dum intellect, which was like dum-dum bullets, which go laterally instead of hitting the target directly. They go out in all directions, so to speak. And certainly, young Edward Dowling knew that his own intellect was more of the lateral kind where he would make connections between disparate things, and that was his gift, rather than in just honing in on one thing and digging really deep. And so the fact that he not only was intrigued by this article about those two intellects, but also wrote an article about it himself, really shows that early on he was thinking that in order to fully realize his own intellectual gifts, he needed as a dum-dum intellect to team up with an armor-piercing intellect. And that was the point of this article that he was critiquing, too, that the two need each other. I think of that wonderful Rogers and Hammerstein song about the farmer and the cowboy should be friends. Well, likewise, the person who's a lateral thinker and the person who thinks directly should be friends. Or myself, I have ADHD and not everyone has ADHD. And if I get together with other people with ADHD, we can have fun conversations, but we might not necessarily get a lot done. So if I want to get stuff done and I team up with someone who has similar ideals, similar values as me, but happens to not have ADHD, the two of us can do some amazing things together. So I think that young Edward Dowling was dreaming of that kind of partnership. I'm so grateful for the expansive way you answered that question because you've set up perfectly now where I want to go. You've mentioned that he was Father Ed Dowling SJ. He was part of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. And for listeners that are unfamiliar with this particular order within the Catholic Church, it's got some peculiar ideas. And one of the ways that Jesuits sort of approach problems is they do what's called descending into the particulars. And what I really like about what you just said is, whereas some other Catholic approaches might say it's a one-size-fits-all kind of approach— The Jesuits really try and take much more individualized approaches to individual problems. You mentioned that you are neurodivergent with ADHD and that you think well with certain other people. And then when you get with uh, with people that kind of think on the ADHD wavelength, sometimes not a lot gets done. And what I'm really appreciating about this moment with Father Ed was he also, in a very descent in the particulars kind of fashion, was recognizing, hey, the way that I think is different from the way that other people think. And this extraordinary variety is not to be suppressed, but rather it's meant to complement each other. And so he is constantly throughout this book looking for people to partner with, to think with, for ways to, again, to use a Jesuit phrase, ad majorum deo glorium, for the greater glory of God, to bring together like greater good for the commonweal, for the kingdom, for however you want to call it. Now, I've just said a lot of words in my own words to try and describe how I understand the way that Father Ed was thinking at that moment when he wrote that editorial. I I wonder, have I got it right, or would you say it in a different way? No, I think you've said it quite beautifully, and you've reminded me that for all my study of Ignatian spirituality, there are still things I need to study, such as descending into particulars. It's very relevant to the approach that Father Ed was seeking to take. Well, and now that we've set this piece, who Father Ed was and where he fits in the larger Catholic sphere, there was a moment when a person who was a friend of Father Ed's was himself struggling with alcohol. A person, I believe his name was Eddie, and I want to make sure that this is not confusing to our listeners, so we're going to be talking about Father Ed and his friend Eddie here. But Eddie L. was struggling with alcohol to the extent that his wife left him at least for a brief period of time, if I'm remembering the story correctly. And in the process of trying to minister to this family, 
Father Ed began to become aware of this organization in Akron, and it had a, a couple of other chapters in some other cities called Alcoholics Anonymous. But I wonder if you could talk us through the steps that sort of led from him trying to minister to this family to his getting involved in understanding what AA was. Sure, sure. And although I appreciate you calling Father Ed's friend Eddie L., I, I will tell you that I did get permission from Eddie L.'s daughter to breach his anonymity. So just to distinguish him more easily in our conversation from Father Ed, I'll call him by his last name, which is Leahy. So Leahy was the Washington reporter for the Chicago Daily News, later moved to Washington from Chicago and became a reporter for the Knight Ritter News Service and actually became the leading Washington reporter in the in the country. And Leahy had a terrible drinking problem to the point where his wife had separated from him, not legally, but just physically to live with family. And she had brought their two young daughters with her. And meanwhile, Leahy's boss at the Chicago Daily News was telling him that he had better stop drinking or he would be fired. So Father Ed was known as the priest for people with problems. So at the time that Leahy came to him with his problem, which was in early 1940, or rather that Father Ed was told by a friend of Leahy about Leahy's problem, and Father Ed approached Leahy to try to help him resolve this. Alcoholics Anonymous had not yet taken off nationally and gotten very little national press. I think just one magazine article. It hadn't yet been written up in the Saturday evening post, which was its first major national press. So Father Ed managed to reunite Leahy with his wife and extract from Leahy a promise that he would abstain. But that was the best that Father Ed could do, not knowing of AA. So a few weeks later, Father Ed was visiting Chicago from St. Louis, where he lived, and he visited the Leahy's, and he was very happy to find that Ed Leahy was still not drinking. And Ed Leahy told Father Ed that he was getting together for meetings with some of his fellow people from the Chicago Daily News and others who were drunks, and they were helping each other stay sober. And Father Ed was somewhat dubious of this, so Leahy invited him to a meeting. And that was Father Ed's first encounter with Alcoholics Anonymous. And he didn't really know what to make of it until people started telling their stories. Storytelling is really the central part of these meetings where people give what those of us who are in the Christian world might call witness testimony. In AA, it's not a religious organization. People simply talk about how they stopped drinking or how sobriety is going for them and what their successes are, what their challenges are. And they admit their vulnerability to one another and encourage one another or seek encouragement from one another. And that, along with the big book and the 12 steps, just fascinated Father Ed because he recognized that here was a new kind of fellowship that in some ways mirrored the Christian fellowship, but also opened it up to, was open to people beyond the Christian world. Well, and what really fascinated me about this portion of your book, Father Ed, was that Father Ed at that particular point, he gets it almost immediately, and he gets excited, and he writes off to what at the time I believe is called the Alcoholic Federation or the Alcoholic Fellowship, and he sends them a dollar, a crisp Alcoholic dollar. Alcoholic Foundation, Alcoholic yes. Alcoholic Foundation sends them a dollar and says, send me all the materials that you can that this will cover. And so he gets some pamphlets and some other things, and he goes back to St. Louis. There is no AA chapter in St. Louis. And so That's he, right. he becomes almost an evangelist for this organization, and he starts going around saying, I need you to introduce me to some alcoholics. Now, do I? Yes, have that's right. right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And there were already some people on the ground in St. Louis who were hearing about AA, and they would go to Chicago to learn about AA. But Father Ed had a couple of advantages. Number one, he, as a priest, was someone whom people would come to with their problems. 
outside of the confessional, he was hearing about some of these people and their families who were in need of help for alcoholism. But beyond that, he was also a great networker, a great connector. And he, as a priest, also knew how to get favors from people. So at that time, AA was still an organization for businessmen. And I think they were just starting to open it to women, but still, it was not for the street drunk at that time. They were actually trying to avoid the impression of being for street drunks. Thankfully, it has changed and opened it up itself up to everyone. But one of the things that Father Ed, I think, recognized was that if you're trying to bring people together to a gathering of alcoholics, you don't bring them to some, you know, basement room of a church. If you're trying to start it out, you bring them to a very nice room in some wealthy person's house or some meeting room in a hotel or something. So that was how he started to bring people together and get the St. Louis AA off the ground. Well, one other piece that I think is important for listeners to understand about Father Ed, and you give a couple of examples of this in your book, he was a person who was willing to take risks on behalf of the vulnerable, even to the point of getting in trouble with other priests and other superiors in order to gather in those that were on the margins. Now, these are, again, my words. Am I saying this correctly, or would you say it in a different way? And once you've clarified, if you could maybe give us an example of this. Oh, absolutely. And there are many examples of this, but yes, I think you've said it very well. Although, as I mentioned, AA, when it first started, was not for street drunks. Father Ed's door was open to anyone with a problem. So people from high society would certainly come to him with their problems, including relatives of the Bush family of Anheuser-Busch fame, you know, St. Louis being a great beer town. But also people would come in to see Father Ed, who after they left, the secretaries would discover, the secretaries having gone out for lunch, they'd come back and discover that their typewriters have been stolen. You know, in this day, it would be like coming back to the office and finding that your computer equipment had been stolen. But, you know, Father Ed didn't turn anyone away. And because of that, as you mentioned, even his brother Jesuits were somewhat suspicious of him. There was a priest who was Father Ed's spiritual director, who had been a Jesuit with him from the beginning, from when they were both novices together, named Father Charles Clark, who took the name Dismas, calling himself Father Dismas Clark after the good thief, because Father Dismas Clark was into prison ministry, and he ended up founding Dismas House, which was the first halfway house in the country for former inmates, young inmates needing to adjust to life outside of prison. So Father Dismas, at a certain point, was basically politely kicked out of the housing that he had with the Jesuits in the St. Louis University community. And he was sent to the community at the Queenswork, which was the publishing ministry that Father Ed was part of. So he was living in the same community of writers as Father Ed. And the Jesuits back at St. Louis University used to joke that if you're a couple in need of marriage prep, if you're a criminal or a prostitute, you go to Father Dismas or to Father Ed. Otherwise, you can go to any priest. That was the sort of humor that they had, but it was, but he was really, um, other Jesuits, many of them, not all, but many would look down their noses at Father Ed for the kind of work he did. What an amazing thing, though, to be known for. And looking back now, To me, that's the kind of priest you would want to go to, the priest that had the heart even for the prostitute or the criminal. Absolutely. But at the time, and that really gives us a little glimpse of how society viewed propriety at the time, and the clergy was caught up in this kind of keeping up of appearances. Like you said, AA was for the business people, it wasn't for the street drunks, and part of The good work of the Holy Spirit, I would say, was getting Father Ed in the position to where he could be a fulcrum point for bringing this organization to the people. Now, when I say it that way, does that sound weird or does that feel right to you? No, that's absolutely right. And interestingly, the first 
African-American chapter of AA was founded in St. Louis in 1945, five years after Father Ed uh, helped to found the first AA chapter in St. Louis. And I don't think that's a coincidence. If I'm, if I'm going to be a stickler for accuracy, I would say that there was, a, I think, a short-lived African-American chapter in the Washington, D.C. Area, area before that. But, you know, AA in its early years was closed to people of color. And Father Ed, he had correspondence with a Chicago member of AA, Joe D., who was writing to him, asking him, can you lobby Bill and the others about opening it up to Black members? And Father Ed, you know, we're back saying, you know, Bill and I have talked about this. Bill wants this. Father Ed's challenge was that as a non-member of AA, he couldn't be seen as pushing people. So Father Ed said to Joe D., you want a Black chapter of AA or you want to see AA integrated, you have to do it on the grassroots level. And so I do believe that Father Ed was quite influential in integrating AA. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dawn Eden Goldstein. She's the author of Sunday Will Never Be the Same. She began her working life as a rock and roll historian and went on to editorial positions at the New York Post and the Daily News. In 2016, she became the first woman to earn a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of St. Mary of the Lake. We're speaking today about her recent book, Father Ed, the story of Bill W.'s spiritual sponsor. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dawn Eden Goldstein. She's the author of Sunday Will Never Be the Same. She began her working life as a rock and roll historian and went on to editorial positions at the New York Post and the Daily News. In 2016, she became the first woman to earn a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of St. Mary of the Lake. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Father Ed, the story of Bill W.'s spiritual sponsor, which deals with the history and founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, as that title suggests we're going to be speaking frankly about addiction and recovery in this conversation. If you or someone you love is currently in that space of addiction, we're going to have some resources on our episode page on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, where you can go and begin to get connected to help that you may need. Well, coming out of that last segment, just to make clear, you mentioned something that I wanted to make sure was clear for the listeners. You said that Father Ed said to this person that wanted to begin to integrate Alcoholics Anonymous, because I'm not a member, you need to do that yourself. And I just want to make sure I heard that correctly. That wasn't him saying, it's not my job and I'm not involved. It was something else, wasn't it? Father Ed said that in his conversations with Bill W., that Bill W. agreed with him that if AA were integrated through the influence of people of color, AA's spirituality, the spiritual growth of its members would develop, would grow exponentially. So I certainly believe that Father Ed did much behind the scenes to encourage the integration of AA. And as I mentioned, that's why I believe that it's no coincidence that the first lasting Black chapter of AA was in St. Louis, where Father Ed was. But Father Ed greatly respected the independence and the self-governance of AA. And so he wanted to make sure that any member who approached him saying, well, why don't you get changes, you know, affected in AA, he would always say, no, I'm not the one who affects the changes because I'm not a member. You're the one who can affect change. Well, you've mentioned, and we've talked about the fact that Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual organization rather than a religious one. And we've mentioned the fact that Father Ed, he was a member of the Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits, which is part of the Catholic Church, an order within the Catholic Church. And 
Part of Father Ed's formation as a Jesuit involved certain tools that were developed back in the 1500s by Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits. One of them in particular is a tool called the spiritual exercises. And I wonder if you could briefly give a few sentences for my listeners. What are the spiritual exercises? The spiritual exercises are a series of prayers, meditations meant to be undertaken over the course of 30 days. Nowadays, there are ways to take advantage of some of the benefits of the spiritual exercises through shorter periods of prayer and even through daily sessions in one's everyday life. But ideally, they're done over the course of 30 days. And they really, at their heart, they involve walking with Jesus through the different events of his life chronologically so that you experience personally, you witness his nativity, and then you identify with him through his life and his passion, death, resurrection. And the goal of the spiritual exercises is either to make what they call an election, a choice with regard to one's state of life. What am I called to be and do? Or to gain deeper grounding in one's election, in one's state of life, and to gain more of the wisdom, knowledge, grace to live that out. Well, and so Father Ed was not simply, by dint of his being part of the Jesuits, familiar with the spiritual exercises. He didn't just participate and lead the spiritual exercises, but he was in some ways an expert on the spiritual exercises because he had done graduate work on the spiritual exercises. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, that's correct. And he was decades ahead of his time in this because he was doing his graduate work in the mid 1920s. That's when he did his master's. And he did his master's as a psychological study of the spiritual exercises. I think if I remember correctly, he was forced by his advisors to change the terminology to a philosophical study because the word psychology was considered suspect or because it was like worldly. So in, in certain official Catholic circles in the United States, they weren't really happy about students such as Father Ed studying psychology or using that word. Father Ed wanted to do his doctorate on the spiritual exercises, but was prevented. What fascinated him particularly about the spiritual exercises was what those principles that were in the spiritual exercises did for a person's willpower. He felt that there was a certain quality of the spiritual exercises that could enable a person to develop the willpower to overcome bad habits and to grow not only in grace, but also just in the practical virtues of everyday life. And in all this, he was far ahead. I mean, nowadays, there are people like Father Richard Rohr with his book, Breathing Underwater. Many people in the Catholic world have written about the psychology of the spiritual exercises and about their effectiveness for overcoming addictions and other bad habits. Uh, but Father Ed was a visionary in that respect. And like many prophets, visionaries, he was not respected in his own country, so to speak, in his own Jesuit world at that time for his interests. And we've mentioned that Father Ed was not himself an alcoholic, so he was an outsider to Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, that's right. But there were other Jesuits who were alcoholics. They began to get involved in AA, and pretty quickly, the conversation among these Jesuits and Father Ed turned to, wow, isn't it interesting, the parallels between the 12 steps and the spiritual exercises. And I wonder if you could begin to line out those parallels for us. And that's correct. Well, Father Ed was the first among the Jesuits to discover AA. Later on, John Ford, a great Jesuit theologian, discovered AA and became a great booster of it. And it's hard to call him John F. in a sense, because he wrote so much about AA and is popularly known as a booster of it. But somebody whom Father Ed introduced to AA was Father John Marcoux. I don't know if Father Marcoux was ever a member 
of it or not, but he was known as an alcoholic. And he was in treatment for alcoholism at the time that Father Ed introduced Father Marcoux to the big book. Later on, Father Marcoux would become quite well known as one of the earliest uh, Jesuits involved in civil rights, in gaining rights, particularly for Black people. But at that time, though, Father Marcoux was in a bad place. And Father Ed, I believe, helped him in introducing him to the 12 Steps. And it was Father Marcoux who pointed out to Father Ed the connection between the 12 Steps and the spiritual exercises. Namely, this notion of recognizing that one is powerless to improve oneself, taking a fearless self-inventory of one's faults. From the spiritual exercise perspective, it's, it's going through what spiritual theologians call the purgative way, the way of being purified, allowing God to purify one from sin so that one might then enter into the illuminative way, which is the way of growth in grace, and to ultimately strive for the goal of the unitive way, which is that way spiritually where one desires never to be separated from God. And what fascinates me about this is if we think about the actual language of the spiritual exercises. So a a person who is being trained to lead the spiritual exercises is told repeatedly, it's not your job to be the guide. It's your job to get out of the way and let the spirit deal with the creature directly. And what I love about this is this parallel with AA, where there is no leader in AA. There is no leader in a 12-step program. It's a person coming with a group to learn how to be more deeply in touch with however it is defined, the higher power. So that that's another parallel that I see where, in that sense— even though it's much more explicitly named in the Jesuit context in the spiritual exercises, there's a similar dynamic of getting out of the way and not trying to be the guru to someone. Now, when I say it that way, does it feel right or would you say it in a different way? That's a very interesting parallel, which I hadn't really thought about, but it does feel very, very right. And in in some way, I would say the sponsor in AA plays a role that's in some ways analogous to the director of the exercises in in that the sponsor doesn't just help the person who the member who is making the 12 steps grow spiritually but also helps with simple practical everyday advice about living which is also the role of a director of, of the exercise it's that you rely upon the director of the exercises to tell you like are you fasting too much are you not getting enough sleep that sort of thing and so a sponsor just to make sure I've defined it properly, if sponsor is normally a member of AA who has worked the steps and who helps uh, another member to grow in sobriety through working the steps. Now, even though Bill called, Bill Wilson called Ebby T his sponsor because it was Ebby T who helped Bill to gain sobriety, Bill went on to call Father Ed his spiritual sponsor, because even though Father Ed was a non was not a member of AA, he helped Bill to grow spiritually as Bill himself was continuing his walk in sobriety. You've gestured in this direction already with your answer, but I want to introduce another Jesuit concept, and it's a Latin phrase, so listeners, please forgive me. But the Latin phrase is cura personalis, and it it basically means care for the whole person. And what I really like about your description of sponsorship is the sponsor, as I'm hearing you, doesn't have a checklist of trying to get the person going through recovery to certain goals. Rather, the sponsor is trying to help support this person in discovering and reconnecting to what I would call an abundant life or life life in its fullness, or if you will, to use the Jesuit language, becoming a whole person. Now, when I'm making this parallel, I wonder how that sounds to you and whether that sounds right. And was that language there at the early part of this kind of discovery of these parallels between AA and the spiritual exercises? Was this the kind of thing that Father Ed would have talked about? Well, first of all, I think that what you're describing is certainly you're using language that would have been familiar to Father Ed, and I think he would have very much appreciated the approach that you're taking. I did not see that phrase, corrupt personalis, used 
when I was going through Father Ed's papers or his writings on AA, but it's certainly present throughout his philosophy in terms of how he approached AA. And also Father Ed, um, and this I think relates to what you were just saying, he was concerned with meeting people where they were and in personal accompaniment. And in this, he very much presaged Pope Francis's desire that the church be a discerning church, that we in the church educate one another about discernment. Some people have misinterpreted Pope Francis to mean that that there's no goal in this discernment, that it's simply a progress that simply progresses for the sake of progressing. But that's not the goal of the 12 steps, and it's certainly not the goal of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, and it's not the Holy Father's goal. But one thing that is a slogan of AA that I think is applicable to the Ignatian idea of progress is that it's progress, not perfection, meaning that, yes, we do want to progress towards perfection, but we're not going to beat up on ourselves every day because we're not perfect. We measure ourselves by how much we progressed towards perfection not by how far we are from actually being as we want to be. So you've mentioned that you were doing archival work to prepare for the writing of this book. And there were a couple of points early on in the telling of this story of Father Ed where you mentioned that you were taking a different direction in the narrative than had been taken before. And I wonder if you'd comment on that, the fact that there has become, if you will, a kind of standard telling of the founding of AA and Father Ed's role in it, and you were able to unearth, and these are my words, not yours, so feel free to correct me, but you seemed to be able to unearth a sort of new direction for that narrative. Well, I appreciate your saying that very much. You know, as a biographer, one's responsibility is to be true to the historical record. So I started out my research with an idea of what I thought I would find, but not with a sort of personal insistence that, oh, well, I have to find such and such. So I found a great deal more than I expected to find with regard to the role of Father Ed in AA. There had never been a biography of Father Ed before, but there had been a book called The Soul of Sponsorship, which was an edited collection of Father Ed's correspondence with Bill Wilson. And so that gave me an idea of how Father Ed had contributed to AA through his spiritual sponsorship of Bill. But in going through the archives of Father Ed's letters that were not directly with Bill and going through articles of Father Ed's that nobody had unearthed, such as his article on how he discovered AA, what I found was that Father Ed had a tremendous influence on the early development of AA, not only spiritually, but also just in terms of how people in the clergy came to view AA as something that would help people's faith and not harm it. There's a wonderful story that Father Ed told that I tell in my biography of him, where he's speaking about a rather dignified Catholic man who's fairly successful, who was afraid to go into AA because it was, he was afraid it might harm his religion. And Father Ed says that as this man who's now in AA tells the story, he had never thought about how being roaring drunk and knocking over lampposts might harm his religion. And it was through telling stories like that that Father Ed helped people of every religion, not just Catholics, realize that AA, rather than harming people's faith, would rather help them to better practice whatever faith they had. And that's a huge contribution. Well, Dr. Goldstein, as my final question, I wonder if you feel comfortable addressing this. How has working on this biography of Father Ed affected your own faith and spirituality? Working on this biography of Father Ed has been transformative with regard to my own 
faith and spirituality because I have, in a certain sense, sought for Father Ed to accompany me. And what I'm really struck by is his gentleness. Again, I see a lot of parallels with with Pope Francis in terms of like Pope Francis's emphasis on mercy, trying to show the tenderness of God. It's interesting. I just read an interview with Joyce Rupp where she says that she doesn't like the confession of, of sins at the beginning of Mass because she doesn't like being reminded that she's sinful. She likes to keep in mind like her potential. And although I don't agree with that, I think that we always need to remind not just ourselves, but, you know, others around us in the community that we realize that God is God and I am not God. That's a very important principle in AA as well. Still, I do think that Rupp's larger point is something that Pope Francis has been trying to get at, and certainly Father Dowling was trying to get at, which is that we may begin with our own sinfulness, but we don't end with that. We admit our sinfulness only so that we can say that we have all this room for God to enter in, for God's grace to enter in and work with us, and that God's grace is tender. There's a saying with regard to the spiritual exercises that desolation never comes from God. God may permit it for a time for our growth, but discouragement only comes from the enemy of our well-being. You know, Ignatius says the bad spirit isn't necessarily the devil. It could be that part of myself that thinks I'm not good enough. But whatever it is, that a spirit of discouragement is not from God. God always wants to attract us to the good. And that's how Father Ed worked by reminding people of the tenderness of God and God's desire to embrace us in warmth and to gently help us to do those things that we fear we are unable to do, but that we desperately want to do to improve our, ourselves and our lives. Well, Don Eden Goldstein, I didn't realize how much I needed this book, this book that you've written on Father Ed. I teach Ignatian spirituality, and I've often felt that there is a kind of natural resonance between the spiritual exercises and what I know of the 12 steps. But your book, Father Ed, really laid it out in detail, showed the connections, showed how complementary they are. This is a tour de force, both of research, but also of storytelling, an incredibly readable book. I fell in love with Father Ed and these other characters that you brought to the page. I just want to say on behalf of my listeners, thank you so much for taking the time to research and write this book, but thank you especially for talking about it with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm thrilled that the book meant that much to you as a teacher of Ignatian spirituality. We've been speaking today with Dawn Eden Goldstein. She's the author of Sunday Will Never Be the Same. She began her working life as a rock and roll historian and went on to editorial positions at the New York Post and the Daily News. In 2016, she became the first woman to earn a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of St. Mary of the Lake. We've been speaking today about her recent book, Father Ed, the story of Bill W.'s spiritual sponsor. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.